Let me invite you to turn uh, with me in your Bibles uh, once again this morning to the book of Genesis. And you'll find the sermon uh, scripture this morning in Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, and then continuing into chapter 12, and we'll read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12. Shall we stand together now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word Uh, from Genesis 11, 27 and following? Hear now, church, the word of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father, Terah, in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our hearts and to our hearing. You may be seated. Would you pray with me now and ask God's blessing on his word? Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you have given us the grace and given us your Holy Spirit to testify to our hearts that this is indeed the very word of God and no word of man. So help us be attentive now to your word and to its teaching that we might love you with all of our heart, that our trust might be in the Savior, Jesus, whom you have given to us that we might more fully live in your presence and walk in all your holy ways. Send your spirit now, O Lord, in fullest measure to us. For Jesus' sake, amen. I don't suppose it would be any exaggeration at all for us to call this section of Holy Scripture among the most important, not only in the book of Genesis, but indeed in the whole Bible. Uh, Someone called the first few verses of Genesis 12 the Bible in sum. And here we have, by way of promise, 
the gospel of our Lord uh, beforehand. In this narrative, we are shown the fundamental character of the sovereign grace of God, the very nature of the Christian life and of Christian calling. For here God comes to a man by the name of Abram, living in a land of idolatry and of false worship, plucks him out of his past life and his past existence, calls him to leave that life behind and to go to the place that God will show him. And furthermore, God promises to bless him and to be God to him and to his descendants after him. All of it is such, of such great relevance to us because here it is promised that in and through this single man, all the nations and families of the earth shall be blessed, those who share the faith of this man, Abram. Here, there, promised beforehand is the good news of the gospel. The blessing of salvation in time will come to the ends of the earth, to us, to those who possess the same faith as Abraham, their spiritual father. We do well this morning to set the narrative in its historical context. When did Abraham live? If we count backward from information in the Bible and from the information we can gather from archaeological data, Abraham's life can be dated with a significant degree of confidence to about 2000 BC, 4,000 years ago. And so as many years before the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ as we have passed after it. And we've come in recent years to learn much more about this ancient civilization. It was once assumed, an assumption based on evolutionary theory, that since society moves from primitive forms of civilization to more sophisticated forms of civilization, Abraham's culture must have been much less civilized, much less sophisticated than it appears to be in the Bible. Scholars back in the 19th century, for example, argued that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch, though he lived 600 years after Abraham, because writing had not been invented by then. We now know with certainty this is not so. Abraham must have lived approximately 350 to 400 years after the Tower of Babel. It is now at least 11 generations since Noah. And so as much time passed between Noah and Abraham as has passed between the landing of the Mayflower at Pilgrim Rock in Massachusetts unto our day, 400 years or so. I recently spoke with a man whose father, I believe, if I remember the date correctly, was born in 1874, less than 10 years after the Civil War. That's two generations, 140 years. Abraham's was already an older civilization. Nations carried on international trade. The economy was regulated, like our own, by taxation and government bureaucracy. The people were widely literate, 
Many spoke more than one language. Abraham fits well with this description of that day. He was a wealthy businessman. He had the the ability and the know-how to travel great distances. He would develop uh, new social and commercial ties. He maintained his status in an international economy. I mentioned last week that wherever Abraham went in the ancient world, he found nations and civilizations and cities and was able to communicate with these people and to interact with them at a highly sophisticated level. Many of you will remember, uh, maybe from your sixth and seventh grade uh, history classes, uh, your study about the Fertile Crescent, uh, that uh, crescent-shaped fertile portion of the ancient Near East, uh, stretching uh, stretching from Canaan or Palestine uh, along the Mediterranean Sea to the northeast toward the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and then stretching southeast from there through the river valleys. Abram began his life and spent much of the rest of his life in lands at either end of this vast, fertile region of the ancient world. And men of old wrote about it. There was an ancient man from Egypt who had traveled to Canaan, and he wrote that it was plentiful with figs and vines, that Canaan had more wine than it did water, It was blessed with honey and plenteous oils. Its trees were full of fruits and barley. Uh, In the land, other grains were grown. And there was, this Egyptian wrote, endless cattle. This was the rich and fertile land to which Abram came when God spoke to him and called him. Now in verses 27 through 32 of chapter 11, I'd like to spend just a moment there. We did read them last time. We're given, as you will have noticed, a brief family history of Terah, the father of Abraham. Terah had three sons, which means that Abram had two brothers. The sons were Abram, or Abraham, as he would come to be known, Nahor, and Haran. Gets a little confusing because there's also a place name in our passage, Haran. You have to keep them straight. Haran was the father of Lot who was therefore Abram's nephew. Haran, Abram's brother, died at a relatively young age, it appears, before his father, Terah. Abram took a wife, Sarai, or Sarah, as she came to be known, about whom we are told in verse 30 that she was barren. It's a very brief comment mentioned only here in passing without any further commentary. But of course, it is full of meaning and significance. First of all, as Dr. Truman reminded us a couple of weeks ago when he discussed Hannah, it was for Sarai a great personal pain, and probably for Abram as well. But to be without child, to be childless, to be barren, was for a woman in the ancient world, but not only in the ancient world, also today, a source of tremendous pain and of shame even in society. If children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord, 
and when it seems as if everybody around you is having babies and growing families, it is very easy for a woman who is barren to feel less than, to feel as if she is unworthy. The women around her are giving birth, nursing babies and raising children and tending to their families and preoccupied with all of those things. How is the childless woman to feel? How does she relate to all that? Is something wrong with her that she cannot share with the joys of the other women and the other families? Now, we're not told here of Sarai's personal pain. We are told elsewhere in the Bible of the pain of other women. Hannah, you remember, whose womb we are told very specifically <laughs> Yahweh had closed whose rival, the other wife of her husband, uh, tormented her because she was barren. It led to almost unbearable sorrow, to something like an eating disorder, perhaps. She would not eat. Her countenance fell. She was so grief-stricken. We think of godly Elizabeth in Luke 1, the wife of priest Zechariah, who was also old and barren, though she was righteous. And when she finally gave birth to John, she cried out that the Lord had now taken away her disgrace from among the people. There are some women in this room today who have known this pain. Some dealt with it for many, many years. It's not known, nor can we say why the Lord closes some and why he opens other Wombs. He no doubt has his reasons in his inscrutable sovereign will. But he loves a barren woman, no less. In her heart, she cries out to the Lord. He's not distant from her prayers. And that's, that's the personal side of Sarai's barrenness. But there's another reason this is significant, isn't there? Sarah's name appears here as part of a great list of names, a lengthy genealogy encompassing 11 generations from Noah to Abraham, where we find that everyone, it seems, in the whole world is having babies. Lots of babies, babies everywhere. And God, after the flood, once again, blessed the human race, commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And then I told you last week that by some accounting, there may have been by this time some 12 to 25 million people on the face of the earth. Lots and lots of children being born to lots of mothers and fathers. But in the midst of all that, without comment, there is a barren woman, and not just any woman, the wife of the man to whom the great promise of a great nation is to be made. Now God is going to make a great nation and a great people for the glory of his own name, and he's going to start with a particular couple. What kind of couple does he choose? What kind of couple would you choose? Would you choose an elderly couple? A man in his mid-70s, 
married to a woman who was barren, from a family living in idolatry. You and I would never do that. We don't think that way. We would find a young, healthy, fertile, Christian couple walking closely with the Lord who had already had lots of children who we are sure would be a great success. Wouldn't we do that? But not God. That's not what he does. Those are not the ways or the thoughts of the Lord. God makes a promise of a great people to an older man with a barren wife so that it will always be known that the power belongs to God and not to us. So that we will always see that God turns the things that are not into the things that are. Because the gospel, and it begins here, if you will, in many respects, the covenant of grace as it continues through Abraham is from beginning to end a gospel of the power of God and not of the power of men. It is that God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Could Abraham and Sarah ever had made for themselves a great nation? Of course not. But God could do it through them. And he does it with people like them so that we'll be in awe of his power, give him all the glory. It was pain to Sarah, but it was for the glory of God. Now there's something else to be noticed about the order here. It appears that the last couple of verses of chapter 11 actually happen in time after the first few verses of chapter 12. Have you ever noticed that? The story appears to be told in a non-linear or non-sequential way. For we read at the end of, verse 11, of, of chapter 11 that Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and his daughter-in-law Sarai and left Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan. And after coming to Haran and settling there, that Terah died at the age of 205. And then we read in verse 1 of chapter 12, and this is one way of rendering the verb tense, now the Lord had said to Abraham, previously he had said to him, is the idea here, get out of your country and so on. So it seems as if the call to Abraham or Abram came first as recorded in chapter 12 verse 1. And we had already been given a kind of preview of his leaving with his father as part of his father Terah's family story at the end of chapter 11. But it's told, I think, in a non-chronological way. Now we must understand, dear friends, Abram's call in verse 1 as an act of divine election. The verse or the word election does not appear here. But we can learn as much about divine election from the narratives and the histories and the stories of the Bible as we can learn about it from the teachings of our Lord Jesus and from the epistles of the Apostle Paul. As we've already learned, Abram was not a man of faith when God 
called him. He was raised in a family of idolaters. God called this man, living in an idolatrous world and coming from an idolatrous family, to walk with him. And that is how so often the call of God comes. Suddenly, unexpectedly, sovereignly, out of the blue, we might say. And then, just as today, God changes everything. He calls a man or a woman from the life they had been living and from the people they had been surrounded by, from the values and beliefs that they once held to, to a whole new life, a whole new life with God. That's what the call of God does. That is what it did back then to Abram, and that is what it does today for every Christian. The past is left behind. Everything becomes new. God calls us to leave our former ways and to walk henceforth in new life before him. It may be, however, and it is often the case, is it not, that Abraham was somewhat slow to obey God's command. Have you ever noticed that he did not strike off on his own, but his father took him, 1131. Now, whether this was because his father Terah loved Abram, his son, and could not bear to see him leave, or because, as some have suggested, I think it's a worthy thought, that perhaps something was quickening in Terah, a reality, perhaps, of the Lord. Perhaps it's a combination of both. It is difficult to say, but suffice it to say, Terah would not let Abram go alone. So he went with him. In fact, he took him, the scripture says. But he only made it as far as Haran. Now, geographically speaking, you probably have some maps in the back of your Bible, and they represent this quite beautifully if they have a map showing the path or the journey that Abram would have taken. They would not have gone straight west across the Syrian desert. That would have been a death march. They took the way along the river valley. They went first northwest through the fertile crescent that we mentioned as far as the great ford of Haran where there was a river crossing. And there they settled and there they dwelt until Terah, Abram's father, died. And it was only then after his father had died, that Abram resumed his march and made the rest of the journey to Canaan. And many questions, therefore, come to mind. Was Abram unduly influenced by strong family ties and by affection for his father? Did Terah exert an excessively strong influence upon Abram, his son, Was Abram willing to fully obey God only when his father had died and was no longer there to influence him? It's difficult to say, but let us beware, lest the ties of human affection withhold us from entire obedience to the will of God. 
And it is not insignificant that the name Haran means, at least one meaning, crossroads. It was a crossroads geographically of the ancient world. And it was a crossroads for Abram. There he stood between two worlds. The old world of his old life and country and family on the one side. And the world of grace and blessing and obedience to which God was calling him on the other. Interestingly, the word can also mean hill or mountain or high place. From there, he could look back and see where he came from. And from there, he could look forward to follow God's will. But Haran is a place of immense significance spiritually. There, Abram stalled. His obedience apparently delayed. Now, beloved, when God calls people, he calls them to leave all in order to receive his blessing. When God calls people, he calls them to leave all in order to receive his blessing. Notice verse 1. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. Leave it all. Your nation, your country, your people, your family, and your father, his own household. He was to leave everything behind. The culture the society which he knew from his birth, his attachments, his family of origin. In this case, it's idolatry and even his own father's household. Those are the clear instructions of God. Isn't it at least somewhat interesting that his father and his father's house, at least initially, came with him when he left? But Abram was to leave everything behind, everything that he ever knew, and to go by faith in order to receive the blessing of God. When we moved from California to Michigan, boy, 19 years ago now, it felt like we were leaving everything behind that we had ever known and loved. There were many tears my wife especially, as we drove away uh, in the moving truck. Everything we had ever known and loved was in California. The culture we knew was there, our family, uh, our friends, everything that was familiar and comfortable. Grand Rapids was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, it snowed there. A hundred inches, our first December. City trucks actually came to our little neighborhood with massive hoses attached to them and sucked up the leaves that we had piled out in front of our house. I'd never seen that before. We went to one restaurant uh, recommended by some friends and sat in the back at a table where we ordered our meal from a telephone. 
uh, on our anniversary, we tried to go out to dinner to celebrate. I think it was on Sunday, and every restaurant we tried to go to was already closed. There you go. <laughs> Someone has been to Grand Rapids on a Sunday evening. The wonderful Dutch Reformed lady where Heather worked had to switch the light switches in the office whenever they were misaligned. It didn't do anything. She couldn't stand them not to be in perfect order. Most of the cars, it seemed, were rusted through from the salt they used on the roads in the wintertime, but it was a very different place. But for us, it was the same country. And people spoke the same language for the most part. Uh, they were the same people, but not for Abram. Uh, he left the country of his birth, uh, the place where his native language was spoken, the place whose value system he was familiar with, where he knew the customs and the food and the way of life. All of that he was to leave behind to follow God. And his family, his very large family, aunts and uncles, cousins and relatives, the warmth and comfort of extended family and traditions he was to leave. To follow the call of God and his own father's house, his own immediate family. We're not told if his mother was still living, but he was to leave the confines and protection and tradition of his father's household, to give up the security and stability, all that he had ever known, by faith, to follow the call of God. And why? Because God sovereignly appeared to him because of the grace of election, because God appeared to him and called him. And not because of anything in Abraham. The only thing he had going for him was that he was the descendant of Shem, to whom the Lord God had made a promise ten generations before. This was for God's own good pleasure, so that, as Paul would say, the grace of election might stand. And so that because everything comes from God and goes to God, he might receive all the glory. But dear friends, you must understand this morning that this is the story of every Christian, of every individual believer, and of every individual's salvation. It begins with the call of God. If you were raised in a Christian family, if you've been to church every Sunday of your life, or if, like Abraham, you came from an ungodly and unbelieving background, every Christian life and every individual's salvation begins with the call of God. It's not unique to Abraham. It's behind every child of his that God has ever made. 
One of the Puritans put it in this remarkable way. Election having once pitched upon a man, it will find him out. It will call him home wherever he be. It called Zacchaeus out of a cursed Jericho, Abraham out of idolatrous Ur, Nicodemus and Paul from the college of the Pharisees, Christ's sworn enemies, Dionysius and Damaris out of superstitious Athens. In whatsoever dung hills God's jewels are hid, election will both find them out and fetch them out. It's so true of every Christian. It's true of you, beloved. It's true of all of us. God spoke, and suddenly Abram knew. Suddenly. He heard the authoritative, self-authenticating, effectual voice of God. He suddenly knew that the Mesopotamian moon god was no god at all. He suddenly knew that his life had been given over to delusions and superstitions, that the gods he thought were gods were no gods at all. He was open, able now to open his eyes every morning and see the world in a whole new light, seeing the world as created by a sovereign, omnipotent God and governed by the hand of God's wonderful providence. He saw it in every sunrise and every sunset, in the starry night sky as he traveled, in the wind and in the trees, in the flowers and in the grass, the hand of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the glory of God. His eyes were now opened. His ears were now unstopped. His heart set free. He was born again. He was saved. He was a new creation. That was only the beginning. He was called out of his former life, and he was called to leave it and to go to another place. It was true for him geographically, but it is true for every child of God spiritually. When God calls, when God saves, he will not leave you where he found you. I don't know how many times I've heard Christian people say, I'm sure you've heard it, I could never in my wildest dreams have imagined that I would be where I am, doing what I'm doing, but such is the call of God to be a missionary, to be a pastor, to be a mother, to raise children for God, to teach Sunday school, to lead a home Bible study, to serve the poor in missions, to go to far-off lands, to people who don't know Jesus. God takes his children to places they never thought they would go, to do things they never thought they would do, because when he calls them and saves them, he takes them from the life they were living and brings them to a new place and a new life. 
That's what's so significant about Abram's call and about his leaving Ur of the Chaldees in ancient Babylon. It was not merely to leave Ur and his family. It was to leave those influences and those values and those beliefs and those idolatries and those superstitions behind as well. It was a call, therefore, to separation, to separate from those things that were characteristic of his past society and his family influence and his father's household because those things were in very opposition to the things of God. So it is not only his call that is common to every Christian. It is his separation as well that is a paradigm for every Christian. Every Christian is called to forsake those influences and those values and those beliefs that are antithetical to the call of God. The call has ever been to separate. The call has ever been to leave Babylon behind, to come out of her idolatry from Genesis to Revelation. Get out of your country, Abram. Genesis 12.1. Come out of her, my people. Flee Babylon. Save yourselves and run. Jeremiah 51.45. Come out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. Revelation 18.4. And so there is divine election, there is the call of God, there is leaving the world behind, much as Noah had to do when he entered the ark and the door was closed. God will not leave you where he found you. This is the keynote of Abram's life, separation, step by step, until country, kindred, Worldly alliance, fleshly expedience, one by one were cast aside and he stood alone with God. He went, I love the old King James, not knowing whither he went, not knowing where he was going. The father of the faithful obeyed and crossed the wide world. It was this absolute unquestioning faith and obedience that endeared him to God and made him a friend of God. Did you know that the name Hebrew means one who has crossed over? And the Bible gives this name, Hebrew, to Abram in Genesis 14, 13. Abram, the Hebrew. For he had crossed over the river and the desert and went from his city of origin into the blessing and promise of God. He crossed over from death to life. Beloved, it may be that you this morning are living on the world's side 
of the cross. Come over. Though you might have to break dear associations, come over. Though you should leave country and family and relative and friend, come over. Be one who has passed through death to life. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this, your holy word. Write its eternal truth on our hearts. And save us, I pray. Pass none by, O Savior. We pray in Jesus' name.